right, everybody, welcome to our regular uh, Mission Control Astros podcast. We're coming to you on Monday, August 7th, off day for the Astros, coming off a five and two week uh, sweep of the Guardians at home, uh, which included, of course, a no hitter, um, which we talked about uh, briefly earlier uh, last week. And then we went to Yankee Stadium and split a four-game series, certainly felt like the Astros um, can more than compete with this current version of the Yankees that has holes throughout the lineup and uh, just some real weaknesses. Um, even in the bullpen, the Yankees just don't have the depth they need. It's not a mystery why they are uh, in last place, even if it's a respectable last place uh, in the AL East. Uh, Thursday, uh, Christian Javier, a bit of an uneven start. Uh, Kendall Graveman comes in, gives up what ends up being the winning run. Uh, Friday, we come out with Hunter Brown, get the win. Uh, Saturday, sort of an underwhelming but solid seven-inning, two-earned run debut from Justin Verlander, or Astros debut for the season for Verlander. Um, he took the loss in that one. The bats really struggled, and it was a uh, less than encouraging lineup that was run out there for that game on Saturday um, with Gray Kessinger and Maldi and some other things going on there at the back of that lineup. Uh, and then Sunday, able to salvage a split, um, getting a win behind uh, some extremely shaky pitching, 12 walks from the Astros pitchers, uh, in particular, Jose Urquidy's return and Phil Maton trying to bail him out of a bases-loaded jam created a real mess that allowed the Yankees to tie the game at five. But two three-run home runs from Jake Myers uh, leads the way to a, an offensive outburst against a very limited Yankees pitching staff right now, especially with Carlos Rodon looking like a um, misfire in free agency for them, at least so far. So five and two on the week. Unfortunately, the Rangers go six and zero um, and make up a game and a half in the standings uh, during that week. So they are now two and a half ahead. Uh, Aiden, looking at the series, obviously we've talked a lot about Javier. We've talked about the pitching staff. Uh, what are your key takeaways going forward uh, coming out of Yankee Stadium? Yeah, for Christian Javier's sake, I think uh, you know he does deserve. The benefit of the doubt after his Tampa start, you know, that was one of the best starts, probably the best start he turned in all summer. Um, and he did take a step back against the Yankees, but not in a way that's as concerning as can be. Um, the big issue against the Yankees, even though, you know, his fastball got hit relatively hard, was his slider. Uh, he got basically, I think, 40% strikes or so on the slider, which just destroys the entire operation because when you're a two-pitch pitcher and you can't get strikes on one of your pitches, it makes the other pitch also extremely more just ex extremely exploitable and so um you know i don't think that this is an issue that need, astros fans need to be as concerned about as you know as much as they were about let's say his you know fastball shape before um because there is now uh, this silver lining behind all of this which is his fastball shape is getting better so the vertical approach angle above average on javier's fastball shape was uh 0.25 before the break on the season um, which was a far cry from the 0.53 vertical uh, degrees above average of a vertical approach angle that he uh, posted last season, which allowed his invisible to really shine. 
this year in the lat in the three starts he or four starts he's had since the All Star break, he his uh, vertical approach angle above average is back up a little bit to 0.32 degrees. So uh, definitely a jump from before. Usually probably signifies a you know release point change or something um, that helped him get to that point. And so we'll see if it lasts, but the fastball is just disappearing a little bit more and that's allowing for slightly better results. So once that slider is back, we can start to see some starts uh, such as that Tampa start where, you know, even if he allows the home run from time to time, he will be missing bats. He'll finally, you know, have the fastball shape again to be able to challenge hitters in the zone uh, because Javier has never been the type of pitcher who is built to succeed by nibbling around the zone. Um, that's not his game. He doesn't have pinpoint command, uh, so he can't necessarily rely on that. But what he can do when everything is right is challenge hitters in the zone um, because when his stuff is right, it's very hard to hit no matter where it is. So, um, so sorry, let, let me ask you, because I, I hear what you're saying about it's not the invisible it was last year, but it's trending at times in the data lately towards being a pitch that should be effective and has been in his starts. Verlander's here now. We're in a wild card dynamic where the Rangers are three games ahead in the loss column, and it's very realistic that we could be in this best of three series. We know Fromber's going to start, I'd hope, game one, although Dusty comes out and says, I left JV in the game on Saturday because I went to the mound to talk to him and said, hey, you're my ace. And I'm like, oh, hold on. But let's just assume for a minute that Fromber starts game one in a wild card series. Verlander starts game two. You split those games for whatever reason, right? The plurality outcome is you would split those games. Who are you giving the ball to between Javier and Hunter Brown based on the data you have today to go two times through the order in game three for all the marbles? I, I think this is a tough, it's a tough question. I mean, Javier is very platoon sensitive. It kind of, I, not to take sort of some cop-out answer, but it might depend on the lineup. I mean, Javier, I saw something on Twitter that said Javier's strikeout rate against righties is like 33% and lefties is like 16%. So Javier does not have the stuff to put away a left-handed heavy lineup. Um, I mean, you saw it last year, let's say against the Yankees, where they sent mostly righties Javier's way and it was not much of a challenge. Um, and so, um, you know, it probably really does depend on the opponent, whereas Hunter Brown's a little bit more platoon neutral. Um, but if I had to decide without looking at the opponent, I would probably take Hunter Brown. I mean, Hunter Brown's had a really good season, and both of them results-wise struggled a little bit in, you know, June, July. But one of their one of them had really strong peripherals, and one of them didn't. And you know, I'm going to go with the guy who, you know, peripherals-wise has been a, a really, really good pitcher all season in Hunter Brown. Yeah, and that's my take on it as well. And you also have to factor in, apparently now again with Hunter Brown, you get the A lineup, which is such a weird thing to have to think about. But because Yiner's catching him again, the team almost looks completely different in his starts. You have like Jake Myers batting ninth, and you have this long lineup that has this ability to do damage throughout. And so it's not like the old superstition of, oh, the guys just provide more run support when this guy pitches. They literally put a significantly more offensively aligned team out there behind Hunter Brown. And so now who knows if Dusty would actually do that in, in all the marbles game three in, you know, Tropicana Field against the Rays. 
behind Hunter Brown. But that is something to consider that you do get a better lineup also. So talk to us a little bit about the weekend. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot to say about JV. I think you know his velocity was down a bit. He was you know in the first couple innings he was 92 and a half to 93 miles an hour on the four seamer. He eventually bumped it up to 94, 94.5 on some of those fastballs later in the outing. But he's clearly off a tick, tick and a half um, from where he was, even with the Mets. And then, you know, two and a half to three miles an hour from where he was sitting, um, you know, last year at times. That said, off-speed stuff looked sharp, um, especially the curveball. And he was able to work his way into more efficient innings by throwing the curveball for a lot of strikes. Fourth, fifth, sixth inning, having some 10-pitch innings. And Dusty's right. You know, the, the value of having him there is getting 21 outs from your starting pitcher, only allowing two or three runs. So he does that job. Then yesterday we have a little bit of a mess. Urquidy comes back. J.P. France is the sixth starter, but this time through, because Verlander's just being entered and they had that Blanco start you know, at the beginning of the week, they put France in the bullpen to help rest some of those leverage relievers a bit and do a piggyback for Urquidy's first start back. What you see in Urquidy? What are your thoughts on France and how to handle the back of the rotation here um, coming out of the off day today? Um, so first with Verlander, it was kind of funny because I, I think, you know, I may be misremembering this because I don't have too much uh, actual real data on this, but uh, I saw, you know, Verlander got into a bit of a jam, I think, in the second inning, and he had a huge strikeout of Ben Wartbet. Um, and I think Chandler tweeted, like, Justin Verlander reached back to, I think it was 96.7 to get Ben Wartvet. Uh, and, you know, in my head, I was kind of thinking, wait, I, the tweet sounded familiar. And I don't remember if it was Chandler or McTaggart who tweeted it, but I vaguely remember someone tweeting last year uh, in the Seattle series right after the All-Star break uh, that Verlander, after getting in a seventh inning jam, like, reached back to, like, 99 or, like, 99.1 or something like that to get, I think, maybe, like, Cal Raleigh or something. So, uh, you know, if that's, you know, a very, very fun example of, you know, a, a decline that happens when you're 40 years old and your body's starting to, you know, phase out of that Tommy John honeymoon, then so be it. But, I mean, look, Rolander pitched well. He Rolander will be a guy who can succeed in this league for a long time just by just knowing how to at- attack hitters, um, even if his stuff isn't A+, plus, which it was certainly not on Saturday. Um, but at the same time, you know, if Rolander's fastball is... Velocity is down. Um, the shape is a lot steeper. You know, playing into hitters' bat paths a little bit more. He's more prone to home runs than he was before, which was already a relatively high mark. He's not going to get as many strikeouts as he would before. We already talked in the last episode about how he's already walked more batters this year than last year in like half the inning. So, I mean, this is a guy who's trending to a number two starter. I think he's still in the. You know, if you define ace as a top thirty pitcher in baseball, he's still there. Um, but if you define ace as, you know, top, let's say, 12 starter based on, you know, the aces of playoff teams, I don't know. I don't think you slot him there anymore. And, you know, that's fine. I made my thoughts clear on I, the price that they played, they paid for him. But um, as it's just Verlander, you know, independently, any adding a number a two starter to your rotation is, you know, always beneficial, at least in the short run. So, um, 
I have very few concerns about Verlander. I don't think there's that much ambiguity as to, you know, the pitcher he is now, um, unless you're still, you know, in the camp that he is who he was last year or in 2019 or in you know, 2011. So um, Verlander-wise, I don't necessarily take much issue. Um, I think France versus Arquiti is a pretty interesting debate um, because I don't know what they're going to do. It does seem like the Astros might have uh, picked up some unforeseen benefits last year by going to a six-man rotation for most of the year because, you know, their starters and relievers, generally speaking, were very healthy come and rested come the postseason. And, you know, that's when they really used Presley in, you know, I don't know, 10 out of 13 games or Abreu in 11 out of 13 games or whatever it might be. Um, and that's what allowed them to really shine. Um, and so do I want them going back to that this year? Well, it's a bit of a, you know, a tough question because... Now we're at a point where the Astros do need to be winning these games and trotting out Hunter or uh, JP France and Jose Arquiti when you know you're probably you know compromising one or two from Valdez starts um, is detrimental to the division race. So um, there are a lot of questions to be asked here, but um, a six-man rotation of France, Arquiti, and then the the four guys who are pretty clearly the four playoff starters unless unless I'm missing something which maybe sometimes I am with with Dusty um, is certainly one that can do damage at the, at the big league level it's just you know do you want to compromise that from Valdez start that's a you know a fair question that there's really no clear answer to because of where the Astros currently stand in the division and isn't there a way, Aiden, I know some teams have done this, the Yankees have done this with Cole at times, a lot of teams have with aces going back through the years. You just have Fromber go out there every fifth day regardless, and maybe it means some guys are available out of the bullpen once in a while, but you basically have a modified six-man rotation where the other five guys are being stretched and saved a little bit through the other four spots. And so you almost create the kind of staff where over a full season, you know, Valdez gets 35 or 36 starts and everybody else is getting 29 or so, um, so that you do have the benefit of this one guy who is a horse, is also better than everybody else by a significant amount. I know we're giving Dusty too much credit to think he would do that, but you really can just throw Fromber out there every fifth day. And then if occasionally Urquidy has to get a little work in out of the bullpen between starts, you know, that kind of thing could be effective. Any chance that they would do something like that? And would, would that make sense for you? Uh, usually the questions, would they do something like that? And does that make sense? Do not yield the same answers for me. Um, but I will play along and say, I don't think they would do it because it does seem like, and for not all bad reasons, that Dusty is a very routine-oriented uh, guy who preaches consistency from day to day, week to week, year to year, and, you know, giving... You know, Hunter Brown, three starts and and two relief appearances in a in a month or whatever would come of you know slotting in Fromber every five days doesn't seem like something that Dusty would do. Should they do it? That's a fair question. Um, you know, if if you want my true perspective on what they should do, it's take Jose Urquidy out of the rotation. Um, I think the Astros benefited a lot from having a guy like Urquidy in you know in 2019 when their rotation as strong as it was was just super top heavy and they really didn't have that guy to start that extra playoff game when none of the big three horses were available um and in 2020 when you know Verlander went out with injury um Lance was on and off healthy I mean 
yeah, I, I think Arkeby was immensely valuable there. Obviously, 2021, especially in the playoffs with Lance going down. I mean, they had to go to Arkeby in some really big games. And, you know, to some extent, he delivered in some of those games. Um, but then you get to 2022, and it really shows how expendable Jose Arkeby is when your rotation is actually really strong. Um, I mean, I know fans are going to say that they, you know, made a good decision not trading Arkeby for Contreras. And I generally agree because I'm not big on Contreras, and he hasn't performed very well in a, in a little while now. But... I mean, who do fans think Jose Urquidy is? I don't know if it's the World Series wins, but his peripherals are terrible, and they've been terrible his whole career. I mean, not to you know use these without you know any other context, but I mean Jose Urquidy's you know has posted four WAR in five seasons. Like this is a guy who so marginally improves your rotation and really just does that as an innings eater. So if the Astros were ten games up, I'd say of course give Jose Urquidy these starts, like save Fromber, do everything they can. Do I trust Jose Arquiti in a pennant race? Absolutely not. I mean, his fifth this year is six. It's six. And I know it's a small sample, but he was getting shelled before he got hurt. And I think a few fun, nice rehab starts where he was, you know, allowing very few base runners, striking out some batters, you know, got fans a little bit excited, maybe got the team a little bit excited about what he could do. But this is not a very strong pitcher. I mean, he does not uh, get missed bats very well. Uh, he's very pitch to contact oriented and this quality of contact against him is not weak it's like if you're a pitch to contact guy you better hope you're getting Dallas Keuchel or Framber Valdez-esque results and when you're Jose Arquiti you're not and so you know France has definitely been overperforming too um, he's pretty clearly the five for me and anybody who argues otherwise I think is just blinded by these this, this run prevention that uh, sort of streak that he's gone on in, in the last month which you know everybody's grateful for but has you know I have questions about its sustainability, but Urquidy hasn't even done that. I mean, Urquidy's yeah. numbers across the board are terrible. So um, you know, I don't know how much I want to keep seeing a guy with a 17% K rate and a 9% walk rate in the rotation. But it doesn't seem like he has much of a place there anymore. Yeah, it's funny. You go back to last year at the deadline, and I was one of the people calling for why don't we just trade Urquidy and try to get a bat in here because we were clearly a bat short and Brantley wasn't going to come back. And you get all these people talking about the World Series wins. And, yeah, I mean, he won Game 2 against the Braves the year before uh, at Minute Maid. And it's remarkable how fans see him as this sort of, like, battle-tested, oh, clearly we're going to start him in the playoffs. And I remember thinking, there's no way, and I tweeted it, there's no way he's getting a start in October on this team unless there's injuries. And clearly James Click agreed, because Click tried to get the bat he needed using Urquidy. And so now you have fans with 2020 hindsight saying, oh, well, thank God that Jim Crane and Dusty Baker vetoed that trade. You know, they, they stepped in and kept him from trading away Urquidy. And look, we won anyway. Well, I hear what you're saying about Contreras, who's been kind of marginal for a year and a half now. Contreras would have filled in the at-bats that went to eventually Mancini after Click had to pivot. And, of course, Maldonado didn't hit in October either, so... There would have been a massive upgrade, even if it's just the DH at bats, had they gone to Contreras and he had been a you know 100 WRC plus league average bat in October, compared to what we got. And meanwhile, we may never get another meaningful inning again out of Urquidy. Now that Verlander's here and coming back next year, Urquidy might not have a spot in next year's rotation if you're going to bring JP France back at the minimum. So. Obviously, Luis Garcia would have to get healthy at some point as well. But so I, I totally hear you on Urquidy there, and you know, as you said, sixteen, seventeen percent K rate, nine percent walk rate, 
contact prone, fly ball prone, barrel prone. Um, so I, I think fans need to come down off of the Urquidy as part of our core, you know, workhorse rotation when we're at full strength. He's just not that guy. I think Luis Garcia, even when he struggles some, is a guy where, yeah, throw him out there every five or six days and trust that you have a guy who can wiggle out of jams and be effective for the most part. But Urquidy is a notch or two below that. So let's look at the offensive side of things coming out of this Yankee series. You know, we had talked in the past about, you know, there's a, there's a few different things intersecting here, right? You've got the Yiner Diaz situation with Jordan back. He only starts once, and it's catching Hunter Brown on Friday. He does pinch hit in a couple other games and gets one of their only two hits on Saturday, pinch hitting. But Diaz is largely a non-factor other than hitting that three-run home run Friday night behind Hunter Brown because we just don't use him. Corey Jolks did not participate in the series in any role it's hard to go four games with the kind of movement throughout the lineup that the Astros had and pinch hitting opportunities and pinch running opportunities and just find no use for jokes. Most memorably, on Saturday, after Yiner Diaz pinch hits for Kessinger in the eight hole and hits a single with one out, down one run, down two to one, Martin Maldonado hits for himself. Obviously makes an out. That creates uh, the, the, the jam, or the rally dies. And after the game, they asked Dusty about it. And he said, and this was a quote that he gave to the media, I needed Martin Maldonado still in there to keep the score where it was. Meaning we're down a run. It's almost like he's a high leverage catcher. The way some of us want people to use high leverage relievers, which is, if you're only down a run in the eighth inning, it's important to have a good pitcher on the mound because you can come back only down a run. Don't put your mop-up guy in because you're losing. Dusty is bringing this logic only to catching, where we're only down a run, so I'm going to dramatically lower my chances of getting a hit, although we'll get into whether he was doing that or not, because I need this catcher in there, which tells you he just fundamentally thinks they're going to score more off Yiner, even though they have not scored more off Yiner. They've scored more off Maldi all year. It's a .75 run difference in catcher ERA. So, most important out of that, though, is he really doesn't trust Corey Jolks. Because say what you will about liking Maldi. If there was a bench bat who was trusted and not in an 0 for 36 funk, um, you know, if they had traded for an equivalent of a Trey Mancini at the deadline, I have to believe that even Dusty would have gone with Yiner and the new bench bat for Kessinger and Maldi there. And the fact that he only pinch hit for Kessinger, number one, Maldi has too much trust in him, but we knew that. But what the heck is Corey Jolk still here for? So, you know, we, we can talk about John Singleton later, and he's got an OPS of, you know, 1150 in AAA with a pretty decent sample now, almost 150 plate appearances or whatever. What are your thoughts on the Jolk situation and Dusty's managing of the bench bats this weekend? Yeah, there are two big topics here. The, the, this whole Jolk saga and then obviously the always never resolved, I guess, Martin Maldonado versus Yiner Diaz saga. Um, to start with Jolks, just maybe on a lighter note because you know both of us can you know get pretty passionate about the whole Maldonado and Diaz thing. Um, 
I think that this is an, uh, an admission of wrongdoing on Dusty's part. Um, you don't go from starting 75 of the first 109 games to not even appearing in any four games, even when this team is so desperately in need of a pinch hitter sometimes, without you know this being a, a, a Dusty saying, okay, you know, we had fun for the first 109, but you know this is getting to a point. And I know Jolks has struggled lately, but this is just a like a drop off. This isn't just like a steady decline in playing time. We're going to start to ease him out of the lineup. This is Dusty saying, okay, we actually just can't put this guy in the lineup anymore. Or I don't know if it's Dusty or somebody else in the organization, but it is. Um, and, you know, this brings me to a, a greater point about the misuse of Jolks specifically um, with respect to a few other guys, Myers, McCormick, Diaz, who all would have gotten more playing time this season had Corey Jolks not been on the active roster. Um, because it, it, it opens this question of, you know, how much playing time to give to each player. Um, and there are a few different schools of thought here, but um, to understand sort of a common fallacy uh, in that discussion, I think, it, you know, I'd probably like to make this analogy to something else I'm very interested in, which is poker. Um, and, you know, in poker, you have to find the optimal equilibrium for how much to bluff, right? How much to make bets that you don't want your uh, your opponents to call because your hand is too weak to have showdown value or how much you are you want to uh, value bet, which is how much you want to bet such that you want your opponents to call you so you can get paid off for your good hands. You know, if you are bluffing every single time, opponents are, are just going to start to call your bluffs. And if you're just never bluffing and you're always just betting because you think you have the best hand, they're never going to call those off. Um, and so there is some optimal equilibrium that allows you to optimize your profits. Now, why is this relevant? Because if you are finding this optimal equilibrium between bluffing and value betting, then there's really no optimal strategy for opponents in terms of calling off bets or uh, folding to bets because they're equally profitable if you're managing your if you're at this you know optimal point. But if you get into a point where you're bluffing even one percent too often, if I were to ask you what the optimal strategy is, then I think a lot of people would say, oh, just call their bets one percent more, right? If they're bluffing one percent more often, call their bets one percent more. But that's not the optimal strategy. What the optimal strategy is is to call every bet. Because in the long run, if they bluff too much, you have to keep calling because every single time they bet, it's more likely than it should be that it's a bluff. So you have to keep calling. Another way to think about this in baseball is if you have a guy who's, let's say, a 120 WRC plus hitter or a 110 WRC plus hitter versus a guy like Jolks who we'll say is like a 90 WRC plus hitter. What's the optimal configuration of that 90 WRC plus hitter and the 110 WRC plus hitter? It's to play the 110 WRC plus hitter every time. That's the only way you get 110 WRC plus production out of that square. And if you boil it down to even 101 WRC plus versus 100 WRC plus, you just play the 101 WRC plus hitter every single time. Now, there are a few caveats that I'd like to point out um, here. And, you know, first of all, it's, you know, in a poker game, for example, it's not like, you know, you're dealt cards and you're dealt, you know, slips on uh, how much you should be bluffing and how much you should be betting. Like that's stuff you find out over time in the game. You see how often are they calling my bets and you sort of adjust to this equilibrium point. Similarly, if you're entering this season and you truthfully have no idea if you want more Jake Myers or you want more Corey Jolks, yeah, start with them, you know, give them equal amount of playing time. But once you become confident and, you know, the confident does have to surpass some threshold and, you know, every person and every manager has different thresholds, which I'll talk about in a second. 
But once you become adequately confident that you have one guy who is better than the other, in other words, that you are now have this guy at your poker table who's bluffing too much or value betting too much, then you get into this point where you now do not have any confusion as to what the optimal strategy is. It's to go with the better guy every single time. And so if the argument is, oh, well, you know, Dusty Baker wasn't necessarily sure that Jake Myers is better than Corey Jolks, then we get into a different statistical issue is Dusty Baker is really scared of type 1 errors. In other words, Dusty Baker is really scared of uh, making a false positive diagnosis that, you know, Jake Myers is statistically significantly better than uh, Corey Jolks. He's much more, uh, he's much less scared of going a long period of time without, uh, concluding that one is better than the other without let me ask you let me stop you for a second here because i can already see the feedback you're going to get on this idea that let's say he has concluded at some point by may or june or whatever that yeah myers is a better player than jolks but he's not much much better so i'm gonna 60 40 it or two to one it or whatever okay and so that's how he's gonna split up the playing time what you're going to hear is these are human beings with physical bodies right? Unlike a poker hand. And Jake Myers will not be better than Corey Jolks if he has to play baseball every single day or, you know, 27 days out of the 30 in a given month. And therefore, um, the optimal split that allows him to be closest to his peak performance does require looking for spots, particularly if you see matchups against this guy throws more off speed than this guy or whatever, and so you do have to take into account the fatigue and the matchups, even if you know one player is 5, 10, 15% better. Yeah, and that's a fair point. The matchups game is fair, but, um, you know, when I'm talking about playing the better player, it's always playing the better player with respect to the matchup. And so if in a given matchup you like Corey Jolks better, then Corey Jolks should, and you have enough evidence to conclude it, Corey Jolks should be playing 100% of the time in that matchup barring rest days. And I understand rest days are significant and they do matter, but I think too often people think that, or maybe people, I'm just referring to Dusty and the Astros organization here, think that, you know, these, you know, marginal guys in the Astros lineup, like a Jake Myers, you know, should get more rest days because the cost to resting them isn't that high. And that is true. But if it's already clear that the optimal configuration is to play Jake Myers as much as possible, then why are we resting him more than we're resting an Alex Bregman, right? Both are optimal. You want to play Alex Bregman every day and you want to play Jake Myers every day. Both are optimal. But which one has had, you know, soft tissue issues in their lower body? Which one is now entering age 30? Who is more athletic right now, at least from an agility and speed standpoint, right? It's Jake, it's Jake Myers. So you get into this point where is the cost of resting uh, Jake Myers really lower than the cost of, or, yeah, then the, then the cost of resting Alex Bregman, like, I don't know. And so there are, there are a lot of different schools of thought here, but the general point is that once you have that evidence, and like we can you know, beat around the bush a little bit here, but we've had evidence that Jake Myers and Chaz McCormick are better than Corey Jilks for a while and now. I mean, Jake Myers can be, you know, hitting uh, with a, a, have a 90 WRC plus at the plate, but his defense and speed alone probably catapults him to a level above Jolks. I mean, Jolks is a very one-dimensional player. And just by that, I literally mean just power because he doesn't get on base. His swing decisions are terrible. His defense is incredibly pedestrian. Like, we've had enough evidence. 
The point is, once you do have that evidence, the optimal configuration isn't to find some, isn't to scale the, the difference between Myers' production and Jolks' production into some, uh, you know, playing time difference where if it's, you know, Myers is 1% better than Jolks, you play Myers 1% more. The optimal configuration is to find the guy who is 1% better and just play that as much as possible. That's how you maximize your odds of winning games. That's how you maximize your run production and run prevention, especially in Myers' case because of his defense. Um, and so this, there's way too much of this, you know, oh, we need to just, you know, trot Jolks out there because, uh, you know, he's close to Myers and because he's close to Myers, he, his playing time should be close to Myers. No, the, the, the optimal configuration, and we're seeing that this weekend, is when you need to win baseball games, you go out with your best lineup, no matter what the difference between some guy and his replacement level is. And with that, I'm assuming, with that in mind, there's obviously another factor here with Jolks, and we'll just get into it here since it's topical, which is whether he should be on the roster at all once he's in this dominated position that you're talking about where he offers really nothing because he's also right-handed. You know, to the extent Jake Myers has weaknesses that would come up in matchups, it is about swing decisions. It is about the ability to get on base against above-average pitching. And we've seen Jolks have greater issues than Myers in those areas, poorer swing decisions, you know, less contact, less hard contact lately, where he's really, you know, at the start of this little slump, he was hitting the ball hard. The last few weeks, he's really tailed off. So that said, they're going to Baltimore. They've got three right-handed pitchers, um, starting with Grayson Rodriguez and new acquisition Jack Flaherty uh, for the first two games of this series in Baltimore. Chandler Rome reports yesterday that, and as Dana Brown is quoted on the record here, that they are going to at some point here in the not-too-distant future give John Singleton a chance. If you call up Singleton, I would assume it would be Jolks that would go down. You could make an argument for sending Gray Kessinger down and letting Dubon be the infield reserve, right, and Jolks be the outfield reserve, but... I would think Jolks could go down and you could have Dubon covering center sometimes behind Myers and whatnot. So that said, would you play single? Would you call up Singleton first of all? Would you want him in there as a potential lefty DH against right-handed pitching that has traditional splits? Um, and if he does come up, you know, again, how much would you play him? Who would go? Do you think that the answer to the Jolks problem right now is to get him off the roster altogether? I mean, look, when Corey Jolks is, you know, probably, I think over the last, what, 50 plate appearances, we've seen some version of Corey Jolks that isn't representative of, you know, who he is as a hitter. He is better than what we have seen lately. Um, so I don't mind Corey Jolks being a last guy, you know, off the bench type of player, but I don't think they, they need him because think about it, right? They have, so if we're assuming that Martin Maldonado is in the lineup, which I think for our, you know, insanity, we kind of just have to do. Um, then the optimal bench obviously consists of, we'll say, Jake Myers if Yiner DHs and Chaz plays center and Jordan plays left, which I think you know is pretty clearly the optimal configuration in a Maldi lineup. Um, we'll take Dubon as this infield and outfield utility guy. He's a great person to have on the bench. And then you have two more spots, and for me, it's very clear who those spots should be filled by. Number one, Cesar Salazar, get a third catcher on the roster, be aggressive when you use Yiner Diaz when he's not starting, because he is such a difference maker and he needs to be in every game no matter what the role is. And then 
John Singleton. Because at the very least, he provides offensive upside where the cost of John Singleton not performing at the big league level is so low. Nothing bad will come from it other than a few wasted plate appearances in, in important games. But, you know, all, grand scheme of things, very low. But the reward, if he does pan out, I mean, that's a guy who can start free game one for you at first base. I don't think it will happen because of this sunk cost fallacy and their, the money they've devoted to their current first baseman. But it is absolutely within the realm of possibility that John Singleton outproduces Jose Abreu at the big league level. I mean, absolutely. I'm almost tempted to call it likely. I mean, Singleton's been mashing in AAA, and I understand that it's AAA, and I understand that there's a chance that he's just a quadruple-A hitter who's you know too good for AAA but not good enough for the big leagues. Like, I get it. I, I'm not saying that the production's going to fully translate. Jose Abreu has not been good. Like, he's really not been good. His defense isn't strong. Like, Jose Abreu, my biggest issue with the signing at the time beyond his age, and I wasn't all against the signing, you know, I'm not going to claim that I was, is that... This is a player who, if he's going to return his contract value, needs to be like a 120 to 130 WRC plus hitter because he doesn't provide value in any other regard. Literally no other regard does Jose Abreu provide value in. So it's not exactly a high bar for John Singleton to reach. So that's pretty clearly the bench for me. Yet I don't really know what you miss out on by sending a Jolks down, a Kessinger down. Maybe Jolks, you know, takes what he found at the big league level, uses that experience to, you know, make tweaks in the minor league level, and then we see him in you know, April of next year, and, you know, he's a better player, great. Same with Kessinger. Like, I don't see what value they provide, and the upside of Singleton and the usefulness of Salazar are just way too great. And it's funny because your ideal bench, your ideal roster, basically, on the offensive side, is clearly Dana Brown's ideal roster also. He tried to shove Salazar down Dusty's throat for that reason, so that Diaz could start at first base twice a week and DH twice a week and pinch hit wherever the hell he wants the other three days, even if Maldi's going to catch the vast majority of the time. Dusty just wouldn't use him that way. He just refused to take Maldi out of games. He refused to give Yiner enough starts and in other places. And so Salazar ends up playing, you know, five games in two months or whatever it was. Likewise, Dana gave quotes that I would, I don't know if you saw them, would outrage you on the Singleton stuff where he said, we're going to call him up at some point soon, and then it's going to be up to Dusty. If Dusty likes what he brings, then he could make an impact to us. If Dusty just finds him to be limited, then we'll have to adjust to that. And it was sort of, it was this weird way of just being like, he was almost flat out saying, I'm going to give him to Dusty, and Dusty might say, screw you, I'm not using him, and then I guess I'll have to you know, send him back down like Salazar. It, I've never heard a GM so candidly on the record say, I would like him doing, and he talked about the role, DH a couple times a week, pinch hit, like we can get singleton plate appearances, but ultimately whether Dusty does that or not, hey, he's the manager, and if he just, it's almost like, it's like a body rejecting an antibiotic. It's like I can give him singleton to cure the illness in this lineup, if for some reason my manager just spits it out like a toddler who doesn't like the cough syrup, then we'll just send him back down and bring Jolks back up. And it, it's just such a wild power structure that the GM has to openly acknowledge that in the flow chart of the organization, I am on equal footing with the field manager. We both report to the owner. I can't make him use the players I give him. And, you know, so... I, I just thought it was funny because I hear you talking about the roster and how it would work. 
No one thinks that Dana is, you know, Mike Elias or Sig. Or, we know he's not like the most analytics-friendly GM in the whole league. But he agrees with the analytics perspective on how the roster should be used. He's not a dumb man. He sees how you could optimize run scoring a little bit here. But he's acknowledging that, like, you know what? The manager's not going to do the three-catcher thing the way I want. The manager probably won't use Singleton the right way, and then he'll be back in AAA, and then we have to put him through a DFA and hope he clears, which I don't know why he would clear because, frankly, there's a lot of teams that could use a lefty bat. And he's, you know, the difference between him and Abreu right now is almost exactly 500 points of OPS, 640 to 1140. I understand that you can't have these minor league equivalencies or major league equivalencies, rather, be gospel. It would be a 99th percentile outcome to have a more than 500-point dip from a player being promoted, no matter how quad A he may be. So I agree with you. He's a likely upgrade at first base. And even if you just give him two starts a week against some of the tougher righties you're going to see to work some walks and take some, some hacks, it's very unlikely you'd see a downgrade there. So any other thoughts there on the Singleton mix? Yeah, I mean, Singleton alone, I don't have too many more thoughts on. But, you know, I did see that quote, and, you know, I don't even know where to start, but that's just an absolutely pathetic way to run an organization, and I don't think it gets enough attention. Um, you know, I think in baseball, right, you you just, whether it's on the on the field, in the clubhouse, in the front office, you have a bunch of guys who are talented, who have skills, who have strengths, they have weaknesses. And what the manager's job is, in general, is to, or let's just say the baseball you know, whoever makes baseball decisions, it's their job to make sure that the guys who are strongest in certain areas get put in those areas. The guys, you know, who are the best hitters get, you know, put with the most played appearances. The best defenders play the field more than the guys who probably should be DHing, right? That's stuff that we all know. But it also applies to baseball operations and baseball decisions too. The smartest, my biggest gripe with this whole thing is, and I don't think any organization is perfect like this because of the politics involved, but the smartest baseball minds should always be the ones making the baseball decisions. That shouldn't be a controversial take. It shouldn't be the guys who are around, who you know, were batting next to uh, you know Hank Aaron or or who managed Barry Bonds. Like it should, you know, not to call one specific guy out, but you know, it shouldn't be those guys who just have the experience. It should be the guys who are most qualified to make baseball decisions. You know, I I have a lot of you know interest in working in baseball in whether it's the short run, the long run. Like you know, it is something that does appeal to me. But one thing. I'm consistently seeing is that there is this political side of it where you're not getting the smartest guys making these decisions. I mean, there, you know, Max Bay, a uh, I think R and D guy in the Astros organization, you know, he develops stuff plus. Like that takes in, like you know an incredibly refined understanding of how you know pitch characteristics uh, work and a very strong computational understanding to ultimately evaluate pitchers at a high level. And then you have these managers who are you know are probably just gonna reference pitcher wins or or ERA or for hitters home runs and RBIs and batting average versus lefties in a 60 plate appearance sample like it's not aligned with the guys who are actually most qualified to make these decisions you know I think people place way or front offices and organizations place way too much emphasis on baseball experience when you can teach any baseball is not a complicated game like a chess is or some other really advanced you know strategy games are it's just not so you can teach any smart guy baseball and he could pick up 
you know, some sort of optimal rules within like an hour of just thinking about how to ultimately, you know, strategize. You ask a smart guy to set a lineup, you know, he could do a lot worse than just ranking the hitters by best to worst. You know, I think people try to get cute and go to these old baseball adages, but it's just not the way that baseball organizations should be run. It should be the smartest guys, the guys who are most trained to make decisions who are making these, and then let guys like Dusty handle the clubhouse, handle the baseball culture, the stuff that you can't necessarily quantify to or optimize with quantifiable methods, right? But those guys shouldn't be the ones making the baseball decisions, and it's really holding the organization back, like really badly. And to be fair here, you know, James Click and Dana, Dana Brown probably aren't able to develop something like Stuff Plus independently the way Max Bay can, but that's okay because both of them seem to understand that you can listen to those people and be the leader who takes their thinking into the clubhouse and says, we need to look at doing things this way. I mean, almost all organizations that have very bright people working for them have older people who might not be on the top of their intellectual game still, but respect the people who are enough to lead the organization using that thinking. And it seems like whenever Dana gives a quote, he is listening to those people around him in that front office. Dana's not telling them, sorry, nerd, Dusty's got this. It's that Dana feels like he can't intrude on Dusty with the thinking that he has from his own people. I've been somewhat refreshed. I don't, the Verlander trade, I think Dana just was locked in a broom closet, more or less, whether he was involved or not, you know, figuratively speaking. But when it comes to these like day-to-day decisions and roster construction and usage, he seems to be in the same box Click was in. He knows what they should do. He's smart enough, like you said, to spend an hour learning the basic rules and be like, oh, yeah, we should carry three catchers and let Diaz do a bunch of stuff. They just don't do it that way. And so the real issue here, of course, starts at the ownership level. Why is the manager empowered to not have to listen to the general manager and the general manager's analysts? Um, And that's sort of where we're at, and those are the decisions. Now, of course, we won the World Series last year as we sort of slowly through the course of the year morphed away from letting the analytics people have a say in that stuff. And who knows, you might luck into another ring here, but I hear what you're saying, that the talent that's left over from when people like that were making decisions has a real expiration date on it. And if we keep making decisions like this, there's not going to be a next core. There's not going to be optimized usage of whatever core comes next after this. So um, I want to switch gears here quickly um, in our last 10 minutes or so into the here and now of this race in the AL West and what it calls for going forward. The Astros are two and a half games behind the Rangers. The Rangers, unfortunately, will be playing Oakland this week, while we are up in Baltimore playing a very strong team. Um, Grayson Rodriguez, who starts game one of that series, has looked much better since being called back from AAA. He'd been the top pitching prospect in the sport going into the season in some rankings. Um Jack Flaherty had a very good debut for them. He was up two miles an hour on his fastball from where he was in St. Louis, which pains me as someone who was advocating for the just get Flaherty to be your fourth starter approach, stick with Javier Brown and Fromber, and Flaherty will be a huge upgrade after that. They didn't give up a top 20 prospect or top 15 prospect in their system. Flaherty comes in, he's immediately bumping two miles an hour higher. Um, So, 
The division seems, I wouldn't say it to be a long shot. I think we're clearly very live as an underdog, 25 or 30 percent at absolute minimum to win the division. Um, that said, what are your thoughts on how aggressive they need to be? Is it best lineup every day from here? You've already said get Urquidy out of the rotation. By the way, Seattle is now only two and a half to three games behind us. Um, they've been red hot. They just swept the Angels, who have collapsed as predicted right after not trading Otani. So how do you see the division right now? What does it call for from us? Are you feeling confident going into the playoff race here? I'm confident in the players. I'm not confident in the organization at all, though. I think it is urgency, right? I mean, we keep going back to that word, but this is now or never. Um, I don't know at what point you can finally, you, people are going to finally say, oh, now we need to start winning games. But August games count the same as September games. I mean, winning games, winning these three Baltimore games, for example, will pay tremendous dividends. Tremendous dividends. And you know what? If that means that if you're going to go be a little more aggressive in these games, but you also want to rest your starters, that you go on a six-man rotation, fine. You know, Jose Arquiti, you can do worse for a sixth starter. Um, but... This is now getting to the point where we are seeing Yiner Diaz sit five of 11 games. Like, are you kidding me? Like, seriously, I'm not going to, you know, make this too much about Maldonado because Maldonado is going to be in the lineup when Maldonado wants to be in the lineup. Like, that's very clear. But you have this guy who is basically pacing the team, except for Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker, in every expected batted ball metric. I mean, there are two players on the team who hit the ball better than Yiner Diaz. Jose Altuve doesn't even hit the ball harder than Yiner Diaz or you know he Jose Altuve is very unique in how he succeeds so you know not to knock on him at all he you know does his thing and credit to him but in terms of just pure contact quality it's Jordan Alvarez it's Kyle Tucker and it's Yiner Diaz and we're seeing that guy start five of 11 games like that's a joke that's seriously a joke and not to just you know hyperbolize here but that's just wins left on the table it might be a small number of wins but the whole point is that it's wins and this is a lot you know you've brought up this death by a thousand cuts idea before but this is just now getting to a point where we've left a lot of wins on the table for whatever reason or not you know we need to now start being more aggressive in bullpen decisions i know presley wasn't available yesterday um and i had what turned out to be a relatively unpopular take that presley or whoever the highest leverage the best reliever available was should have entered yesterday's game in the fourth inning because that is the highest leverage spot you're going to get and we saw aj do that in the 2019 playoffs i know presley wasn't the closer then still the best reliever on the team in my opinion then um but regardless you, this is now needs to get to a point where you need to do what you can to win these one run games you know we i always saw, by the way if i just cut, cut in here we also saw Wandy Peralta, who is the second highest leverage reliever in the Yankees bullpen behind their closer, Clay Holmes. He came in to get out of a jam in the fifth inning. And normally they save him for that pocket with um, Tucker and Jordan in the eighth. Or, and that there clearly was going to be another pocket for him in the seventh or eighth. And Aaron Boone says, look, I'm going to go for it right now. And I just, I'm going to get back to you in a second. I can't encourage Astros fans enough who think we're crazy when we tell Dusty, as Aiden did yesterday, just go to Presley here, watch some of these other teams, not just Baltimore and Tampa, who clearly do all, they pinch hit in the fourth inning once like the starter's out and the platoon advantage flips, you know, many, many teams, mid-level teams, low-level teams, championship contending teams are managing games in the middle innings 
like they're being decided in the middle innings. It is not some like there's three nerd organizations who do any managing before the eighth inning. More than half of the teams are aggressively managing games in the middle innings. And we're sort of paint by numbers until the eighth, or as we saw Saturday with Maldonado, the eighth is too early to take any rash measures, right? And get him out of the game. So anyway, I'll go back to you on that. But many teams, including the Yankees with Peralta this weekend, they decide the game when it's decided. When, when, they, when they know this is the highest leverage spot, they push their chips in. I mean, yeah, you said it pretty perfectly. And, you know, for example, if Dusty's going to, you know, dive in on these platoon splits, right, uh, between Maldonado and Diaz, and, you know, results-wise, Maldonado has blown Diaz out of the water, water against lefty pitching. I think there are sample size and uh, very, you know, noise-plagued issues with that analysis. But generally speaking, that is that has been true. So if Dusty is going to say Maldonado is our guy versus lefties and Yiner's our guy with righties, which I think, versus righties, which I think, you know, has half been true. Um, I think now, once you get to a point where you pull a Nestor Cortez and bring in a righty, bring in Yiner Diaz. I know it's a little bit hard when you don't have a third catcher on the roster, but I think we kind of know whose fault that is too. You know, if in the, in if Carlos Rodon leaves the game with an injury and they bring in a righty, you know who to bring in, right? I mean, the whole point is that you want the best guys out there when, for whenever they are best suited to succeed. And for Yiner Diaz, that does seem to be against a, light, a right-handed pitcher. And for Maldonado, it certainly does not seem to be. I mean, Maldonado is a 37 WRC plus against righties. I mean, that's just a pitcher hitting. Like, there's no other way to phrase that. Um, I mean, Zach Granke had a career like 58 WRC plus or something like that. So, I mean, this is getting to a point now where any start that Maldonado has against right-handed pitching is just a punt. Um, but they don't see it like that. They hit Maldonado in the eighth inning as with the tying run on base and the going go-ahead run at the plate against a right-handed pitcher. And like, we should be clear that the two starters that we're seeing here who are good righties where you're, you would expect a massive split, Grayson Rodriguez and Flaherty, these next two games, it's against Valdez and Javier. So it's going to be Maldi. I mean, he's going to start those games because it's his two pitchers that he works with. And that, of course, gets also into the singleton stuff with maybe having a DH bat from the left side if you're not going to play Javier. I mean, if you're not going to play uh, Diaz when Javier pitches. Or Jose Abreu, by the way, who's going to be probably given all three first base starts here against three righties. So, you know, you have Diaz and Singleton, who you probably would want to give a combined total of at least four or five starts out of the possible six starts in the next three games, right? The possible six player starts you could give Singleton and Diaz. Well, Singleton's not here at all yet, so that's probably a zero. And Diaz will probably, what, DH one of these three games in Baltimore? No, he'll catch Brown. I'm sorry, he'll catch Hunter Brown in the third game. Um, maybe DH one of the first two. So you're going to get one or two player starts out of six from these two guys who should get five player starts out of six. You should let Maldi catch Valdez tomorrow. I get it. DH, Yiner, put Singleton at first base, give Abreu the first game off, and then it should just be Yiner the rest of the series. And so I don't know if that's going to matter or not, but when you talk about urgency and optimizing, we are going to put a weaker-than-optimal lineup out there against right-handed pitchers in big games on the road with our three top starters pre-Verlander, three of the top four now, on the mound you got to win two of these games here so yeah i mean you're absolutely right i think um you know we can save this maldonado and diaz discourse for 
another time because it does at this point feel like beating a dead horse even though there seems to be new evidence that we are justified every single day whether it's a completely absurd dusty quote or just more evidence that Maldonado is not an MLB caliber hitter um, or honestly maybe even an MLB caliber catcher Um, but you know we could leave it at that Um, I do think that though regardless of your stance on that this needs to be now Jake Myers Chaz McCormick I mean Jake Myers should be in the lineup every single day that Yiner Diaz or that Martin Maldonado is is or Jake that is not in so um, unless you're going with Maldonado and you want to run Diaz at DH and Chaz in center field, which is fine. Jake Myers should be in the lineup every single day. Um, Yiner Diaz absolutely needs to be in the lineup every day. I mean, this is just now like clearly wins left on the table, runs left on the table, however you want to phrase it. Like it's, it's problematic uh, beyond just the Maldonado issue. Um, and so, look, this will be pretty telling. Um, I know in the postseason last year we saw Dusty roll out, you know, most mu- – mostly the same lineup um you know i understand uh that in the postseason dhs didn't really do him any favor so he kind of you know was left with no optimal choice there but uh played Chaz in pretty much every game in center field if i remember correctly um and you know we the catcher distribution was about as expected um so you know it does seem like dusty baker is capable of you know picking his best lineup or at least his version of his best lineup um, but we need to start seeing that. I mean, this isn't a point where, you know, you're going to hang the banner if you get to October in a wild card spot, but you're as rested as can be. Like, the dividends you get from winning the division are so great in Major League Baseball um, that you do whatever you can within reason to, to get there. And yeah, on that note, um, you know, we know that this week is important. Um, you can't fall too much further behind. And it's hard to think of a week where you're more likely to lose a game or two than Texas playing Oakland while you're on the road in Baltimore. If they can somehow play to a draw with Texas this week, and a draw with Seattle for that matter, which is coming up strong behind them, they'll be in a much stronger place going into the weekend. They've got the Angels. You look ahead just a little bit on the schedule here. They're going to be at home this coming weekend against the Angels. Then they're in Miami against a kind of a weird Marlins team that has a winning record but is extremely lucky in close games. Um, but they'll be playing them early next week. Um, then an off day, and then they have a homestand against Seattle, very important games, and a four-game series with the Red Sox. Um, and then on the road to Detroit and Boston after that. So there is going to be a somewhat softer stretch But if you put yourself four or five games back here, um, no one is likely to make up a five-game deficit in the last six weeks. It doesn't matter how strong you think your roster is. um, They really can't give games back. So Aiden and I will be with you uh, hopefully for Friday morning to recap this critical series in Baltimore and look ahead to the weekend against the Angels as they come to town. Um, I believe Otani is starting Wednesday this week, which means we would miss his start entirely this weekend. Um, they're lined up to use Detmers Anderson uh, at least the first couple of games. I don't see a probable yet for Sunday. So thank you for listening, and we hope to have an optimistic recap of uh, a treading water or gaining ground week in Baltimore uh, in this very competitive race. Our first competitive division race in a full season uh, since 2016. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys on Friday morning.